Lord, uh, we just thank you for your grace to us. Again, we thank you for for coming down and, and for living among us. Uh, we thank you for saving us from our sin. We confess, Lord, this morning as we gather that you are your Lord and your King, and we come to worship you this morning in everything that we do, and, and especially now as we, as we turn to your word and we open up your word to hear about who you are and to be instructed in how you'd have us live as your people, Lord. We know that as your word goes out, that your, your spirit goes with it, that your word accomplishes what it's sent out to do, and, and so we come to this moment hopeful and expectant that you'll do that very thing this morning through us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. You'll have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Romans 11 this morning. We're making our way through this thing, aren't we? I will be looking at uh, the, the beginning of Romans 11, verses 1 to 10, and so turn there with me if you would. Romans 11, 1 to 10. And I'll read here starting in verse 1. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? He said, I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way then, there is also... At the present time, a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace and is not by works, otherwise grace ceases to be grace. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and their backs be bent continually. Uh, once upon a time, there lived a tortoise and a hare. The hare could run really fast. It was very proud of its speed. And one day when it met a tortoise, it laughed at the tortoise and mocked him, saying, you're, you're such a slowpoke. Uh, the tortoise replied, my dear friend, you're, you're so proud of your speed Let's have a race and see who's faster. And so the tortoise and the hare, they had a race. The hare uh, got off the block's hot raid, got out to a big, uh, quick, early lead. Uh, But as he turned back to see the tortoise nowhere in sight, his confidence and his arrogance began to get the best of him. He thought to himself, the tortoise will take a very long time to catch me. And so feeling somewhat bored by the whole thing, he decided to to just slow down, to take a break, to eat some grass, and take a nap. And slowly but surely, the tortoise made his way and passed the hare on his way to the finish line. The hare, he he suddenly woke up, saw the tortoise crossing the finish line, and started running as fast as he could, but it was too late. The tortoise had won. It's a good story. (laughs) Consider the difference 
between me telling you this story and me just standing here making the statement to you that slow and steady wins the race. Consider the methodological difference in what I'm doing by, by telling you the story compared to what I'm doing by just making the statement. Statements can quickly, succinctly, uh, clearly give us the facts of the matter. They can tell us uh, right versus wrong, what is good and what is bad, what will work and what, what won't work, and, and even uh, explain logically why that's the case. But stories appeal to us in a multifaceted number of ways, do they not? Stories evoke not only just our logical uh, thought patterns, but our, our emotions, uh, our desires, our, our imagination. Good stories, they don't just let us uh, merely observe what's going on as, as an outside, unrelated third party. They, they actually draw us into it. They make us a part of what's unfolding. It's not that good storytellers, they don't have a, a message or a conclusion to communicate or something that they want you to do or believe at the end of it, they very much do. But it's the way that a good story goes about communicating those things to you that makes it lasting and effective and impactful. The story, it doesn't so much just lay it out in simple kind of step-by-step thought process, processes or, or state it to you in summary form. Rather, it's through the, the, the careful uh, and intentional development of a plot and of characters, that it slowly guides you to a specific conclusion. And so, for example, the story of the tortoise and the hare, it doesn't just tell you that slow and steady wins the race. It shows you an example of a humble and consistent tortoise beating a boisterous, speedy, arrogant hare who only tries to rush through life. But in order to, to, to arrive at any of these right conclusions, Part of what's required is that you first have to have an understanding of who the characters are and why they do what they do so you can come away with the right conclusions that the author wants you to understand. And this is why this distinction that we're making between the story and the statement is important for us this morning. What I want to propose to you as we get started here is that the fundamental difference between the statement and the story is exactly what our text is going to demand that we see. Because as we come to Romans 11 now, again, a place that has uh, sparked a ton of conversation and disagreement, uh, even among theological friends, quite frankly, here focused on how to properly talk about God's purposes for uh, the nation of Israel, we have to understand, first off, that what we're after is understanding a story <laughs> and the theology of the story that's told. And not simply just a set of, of systematic, logical statements. So much of our conversation and our disagreement around the text at times, not just here, really, really uh, everywhere in the Bible, oftentimes comes out of various attempts to just confine the Bible down and make it a book full of logical, propositional, systematic statements that need fit together. And then, and then what we end up often disagreeing about is how to make those statements and how to fit them together. Are you following me? And the issue with that from the start oftentimes is that the methodology is all wrong because the Bible is not primarily a set of logical and systematic statements. It's a story. And even in places like where we are today and where we've been, the book of Romans, which is very logical and, and didactic, like all of Paul's writings and most of the New Testament, to be honest, 
so much of what is happening is Paul explaining that story to us. And as a result, helping us understand the right conclusions to the story that's been developed. And so as we see Paul answer the operative question over our text this morning, found right in verse 1, has God rejected his people? What we have to do is we have to remember that, that we're trying to understand the story about how God works through his people. Uh, like with the tortoise and the hare, the message the author wants us to understand, it's contingent upon how well we understand the story he's telling, and that's what Paul's going to do this morning, is help us see and understand the story of Israel. The specific way that he's going to do that this morning uh, is by first identifying two main characters in the story, the nation of Israel and God himself, and then by telling us what they do and why they do it. The nation of Israel, God himself, he's going to tell us what they do and why they do it, and by understanding these things in the story, we'll see two important conclusions that God has not rejected his people, and that God's word has not failed them. That God has not rejected his people, and that God's word has not failed them. And so let's take a look at how Paul gets us there again, by telling us what Israel does and why they do it, and what God does and why he does it in response. When we ask the question, what has Israel done? What we see is that they've killed God's prophet, and they've killed God's king, (laughs) This is quite the plot line already. These are, of course, both the same person now, Christ the Messiah. And we know that it was the Jews specifically who handed Jesus over to be crucified. And this is somewhat of a startling uh, beginning to the argument, but it's exactly where Paul goes right in verse 2. But the way that he does it is by reminding us of of, of similar situations in, in Israel's history where they've done the same thing. And the point is to show that Israel, they're still falling into the same patterns that they have all along in the story. He applies Israel's acts in in the past to Israel's acts in the present so that we would see that they're still doing the exact same things. Uh, First, he goes to the story of Elijah. He says, don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? And these were Elijah's words in 1 Kings 19. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to take my life as well. The context of the story, if you remember, it's Israel uh, in a state of rebellion under the leadership of King Ahab, who leads the nation into, into Baal worship, and his wife Jezebel, who uh, was arguably worse, as she's the one who orchestrated the, the killing of God's prophets. And now they're out seeking to kill Elijah as well. Uh, this was a, a very concentrated effort on the part of the nation's leaders to, to remove God from the kingdom. That's what's happening. And interestingly enough, this is what Paul harkens back to to describe the nation of Israel in their present situation now. When asking the question, has God rejected his people, the answer is effectively no, but he doesn't just say no. He reminds you of how the story goes. That it was Israel who rejected God himself and tried to, tried to completely remove him from the life of Israel. And part of how they tried to do that was by killing his prophets. And seeking to kill Elijah as well. Uh, Elijah, you'll remember, he's, he's a figure of the messianic hope of the Old Testament. Part of the promise of the Messiah is that he would be a prophet like Moses, who's going to, to speak the word of God to his people. That's Deuteronomy 18. And Elijah becomes a, a figure of that hope. You remember in Malachi uh, 4, verses 4 to 6, this is the very end of the prophetic books. 
the hope is for Elijah the prophet to come, usher in the day of the Lord and the coming of the Messiah. But there's also a sense in which rightly understood all of the prophets God sends throughout the Old Testament are all figures of the messianic hope for the prophet to eventually come. Uh, I remember growing up as a, as a young kid and I, uh, I remember when um, cell phones were just coming out and uh, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world, man. I could not get enough of that. I wanted a phone so bad. Uh, I'd ask my parents for a phone all the time, all the time, and, uh, and uh, they'd always tell me no. Um, my mom said I could get one when I was in middle school, uh, but I wasn't going to get one right now. Um, but it didn't, it didn't stop me from asking. Uh, I, I begged and begged and begged for a phone. Uh, and so my mom started doing this funny thing where she would, uh, she would find all kinds of ways to get me, not a real phone, but like fake, fake phones, right? And so it'd be like a, uh, like a fake plastic toy phone, you know, uh, or one year it was a cell phone Christmas ornament for our Christmas tree. That was my ornament was a cell phone uh, or like a walkie-talkie or something. I'm like, yeah, this is lame. Uh, and, and in a way, it was like she was getting me a phone, but it wasn't the real thing that she had promised. <laughs> it wasn't the real thing that I was hoping for, but it was also to keep reminding me that the real thing was eventually going to come. It kept kind of moving me forward in this hope and anticipation that on one glorious day, <laughs> I was going to get a real phone, right? And this is how much of the Old Testament works, too. It, it repeatedly presents you with a, with a specific situation or a specific series of events that's often meant to remind you of how God's been faithful in the past, which is meant to encourage you that God will be faithful in the present, but all of that is, is ultimately meant to get you to hope and trust that God will be faithful in the future in the same way as well. And so much like every descendant of King David it is, a, is a micro-fulfillment of the promise to send a king from the line of David, so is every prophet that God sends to his people a sign that God has not forgotten his promise to send a prophet like Moses. He's still coming. If mom is still getting me fake cell phones, well, eventually she's going to get me the real one, right? She hasn't forgotten. And in the same way, when we see Elijah and Elisha and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and all of them show up on the scene, we see that God is still sending prophets all throughout the story, and that gives us continual hope that he will one day send the prophet, the Messiah. And that's exactly what happens in Christ. But God is not the only one with patterns in the Bible. And that's what Paul picks up on here. God's people also have patterns. Patterns not of faithfulness to the covenant, unfortunately. Patterns of gross unfaithfulness and rebellion against God. Here, patterns of rejecting God's messengers, his prophets, and his word, like the, the movie Groundhog Day with the narcissistic, egotistical weatherman who keeps living the same day over and over and over and over again because he, he can't get it right. Every time he wakes up, it's like, We've been here before, right? Same day. Can't get it right. Most of the movie, it's the same old story. He can't get it right, so it just keeps happening. That's what we watch play out with Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Here they are again, <laughs> back in exile, back in the wilderness, 
back in slavery, even here now in Romans 11, outside of the promises of God, needing a new exodus, needing God to, to rescue them again because they can't get it right. And notice where these patterns, they come to a climactic head. <laughs> All throughout the Bible, God is faithfully uh, faithful to keep sending prophets until the days of Paul when finally, finally, the prophet, the Messiah, comes. God has done what he's been doing and promised to do. And how does Israel respond? Will they also do what they've been doing all along? They reject him. Just like in the days of Elijah, they reject God's word. They don't submit to his teaching. And as such, they reject God himself. And how does it end? The same way it did in 1 Kings 19. They kill him. The patterns between these, these two characters in our story, God and national Israel, they meet at the cross where God's chosen nation kills his prophet. Point being this, no, God has not rejected national Israel. National Israel has rejected God. And they've been doing so for a very, very long time. Not only is Israel charged with killing God's prophet, they're also guilty of killing his king. In much the same way, Paul harkens back to the story in Elijah's day and says, uh, look, we're in the same exact situation again. So does he do that with the story of David, God's anointed king as well. Paul brings this up in verse 9, quoting out of Psalm 69, where he writes, and David says, let their feasting become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent continually. Much like Elijah was seen pleading to the Lord against Israel because they're trying to kill him in 1 Kings 19, so is David here seen pleading to the Lord against those who are trying to kill him here in Psalm 69. But part of the significance here in the psalm is lost if you don't understand first who it's all about. <laughs> it's lost if you don't understand that, that first, as a collective unit, uh, the Psalms is not just a, a songbook or uh, a record of what these specific people were thinking and saying in their, in their historical situations. It is, like the rest of the Bible, a messianic book that's meant to point you towards the hope in the coming Messiah. You think about it like a, like a, a musical album. If you take any specific song out of the context, some of its meaning can get lost, Right? But when you place that song in the context of a whole album, you see that there's, there's intentional structure and, and design and, and ordering on the part of the artist that they intend that you would see. That each song now, it contributes to, to this overarching narrative or message that has repeated themes. It, it even tells you things that have happened in the past, maybe talks about the future, and, and may even foreshadow things that may come in the future. But you only get this when you understand each song in the context of the whole album. The Psalms work the same way in the Bible. We don't have time to do all the work right now, but when you read these Psalms through the context of the, of the entire book and the entire Old Testament even, and maybe even more specifically through the lens of the covenant with David, it becomes clear that these Psalms, they have a particular subject matter, <laughs> which is the Messiah. And, and that it's a messianic book, not just in a, in a sort of typological manner that we can make sense of only looking back now after Christ has come, but actually in a prophetic and future-looking fashion, that they're prophetic descriptions of the person and work of the Messiah to come. 
And this is significant because when we come to places like Psalm 69 now, and, and we read about a king who is referred to as the servant of the Lord and see that he's being shamed and disgraced and humiliated. He's asking for the Lord's salvation. He's pleading to God to, to deal justly with those who afflict him. We understand that that king who's speaking here is not just meant to be associated with historical David. You understand that? He's meant to be associated with the same king who's talked about across all the other Psalms as well. <laughs> He's the king in Psalm 2 who the Lord has set upon his throne to rule the nations. He's the king in Psalm 22 who experiences the Lord's abandonment, yet later is resurrected from the dead. He's the king in Psalm 45 who has an eternal throne. And he's the king in Psalm 72 who just a few chapters later will rule from sea to sea, from the Euphrates to the end of the earth, who all the kings of all the nations will bow down to. They're all the same guy. And ironically enough, it just so turns out that this, this guy that all the Psalms talks about, it's, uh, it's the same guy that the rest of the Bible talks about too. Go figure. It's Christ, the Messiah. But Paul applies these words of the Messiah figure here, talking about the people who afflict him, not just to all the other nations besides Israel, but to Israel specifically. It's a great plot twist in the story that we have a promised king who's going to come from the nation of Israel from the tribe of Judah to, to rule over God's people, who in Psalm 2, the nations are set against him. But as it turns out, those nations in opposition to the king include the chosen nation of Israel as well, <laughs> the very nation through whom the king would come. And we see this pattern in the life of David as well, when as the, the anointed king, yet not yet occupying the throne, but already anointed by God to rule, faced much affliction from the nation of Israel under King Saul. And in the same way, when, when, when Christ came down as God's anointed king, yet not yet occupying the throne, he was opposed by the leaders and eventually the people of national Israel. And how did that go? They killed him. They killed their king just like they killed their prophet. They opposed God's servant and they've been doing so for a very, very long time. But Paul not only speaks about what Israel has done in the story, he also tells us why they've done it. And Romans 11, verse 7, says, What then? This is in response to what God has done, which is where we're going. But he says, Israel did not find what it was looking for, which there he's just talking about the righteousness from verse 9, 31, in verse 10, 3, you remember that? They have not found what they're looking for, but the elect did find it, and the rest were hardened. And in verse 8, as it is written, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 29, God gave them a spirit of insensitivity, eyes that cannot see, and ears that cannot hear, to this very day. <laughs> and, and so the idea that he, that he gives us here is that some have found it, right? Some have found it. But what have they found? Well, they've found the, the, the righteousness that they've sought after. Uh, but but it, was, it was only the elect, right? It was, only, it was only some of them. It's not the whole of Israel, but, but a remnant. And this is what we'll see in a moment on the Lord's part, is that while Israel as a whole, they, they've missed it, God has graciously preserved a remnant of them. But now back to the whole of the nation. Why is it that they have not found what they're looking for? 
well, in chapters 9 and 10, he, he, he says that they have not obtained the righteousness they sought after because they pursued it by works and not by faith. Well, faith in what? What is the object of that faith? Of faith, faith in Christ. And why have they not obtained it by faith in Christ? Well, everything we've just said, right? They didn't trust that he was who he said he was. They killed him for saying who he was. But why did they kill him? Why, why did they miss it? What's the underlying reason underneath all of that? And that's what Paul answers here. He says that the underlying cause of it all was that their eyes could not see and their ears could not hear. And he says this is still the case to this very day. Uh, Paul, Paul's done uh, a lot with the end of Deuteronomy, right? Uh, you remember a lot of citations at the beginning of chapter 10 out of Deuteronomy 30, uh, and then Deuteronomy 32 at the end of chapter 10, and now he's, he's going back to Deuteronomy 29 here. Um, and, and so the conclusions that Moses is making at the end of the Pentateuch uh, and the end of Deuteronomy about the state of Israel and, and what they need to truly receive the fulfillment of the promises, it's extremely important to the argument that Paul is developing here about the state of Israel now at this time and what they need to truly receive the benefit of the promises now. Again, it's this idea of these, these cyclical patterns, right? Uh, the point of repeatedly going back to the end of Deuteronomy is to show that what Israel, uh, that Israel is now in the same exact situation they need to be, sorry, same exact situation they used to be for the same exact reasons needing the same exact things. But let's think about how that's the case. What, what parallels is he seeing in the story then compared to the story now? Well, remember that at the end of the Pentateuch, Moses is speaking to Israel outside of the promised land. Just like they are here now, outside of the promise. They've, they've not gone in yet because they've failed to trust God and worship him. And so they're given the law and they're sent into exile. And Moses gives them both good news and bad news about that at the end of Deuteronomy. He tells them that they will go into the land, okay? They're going to go into the land. They're going to get the promise. Good news. But then he tells them that, that once they're in the land, they're going to be taken back out of the land, <laughs> sent back into exile, because they're still going to fail to keep God's commands. And his message to them in light of that, what they need to do is to keep the message of the book that he's writing, Follow the book he's writing. Don't, don't follow the law. All that gets you is exile. We've seen that. We've been there. We've done that. It's going to be the same story, separation from God. Instead, follow the book, which preaches faith in the Messiah. It's only by faith in the Messiah can you actually obtain that righteousness that Paul says Israel has failed to receive. Follow the footsteps of Abraham and have faith in Christ. But what he does in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4, the verse that Paul quotes here, is he states the underlying problem with Israel and why they have not inherited the promises. Their eyes can't see. Their ears can't hear. They don't understand. Don't understand what? Well, how to get it. <laughs> they don't understand the truth about how to get it. Their righteousness does not come through the law, but through faith. And they don't understand the message of the book that's been written, which preaches the need to follow, not the law, but to have faith in Christ. This is what they've missed. That's why they, up until this very day, they keep trying to obtain righteousness through the law and have not obtained it. And so don't miss what Paul is doing here in Romans 11 now when he quotes that exact verse. He's saying that the problem with Israel back in Deuteronomy 29, 
the reason they were outside the land, outside the blessing, outside the fulfillment of the promise was because they were blind to the truth about how to get it all, by faith. And the same exact thing is true now too. The reason they're still outside the promise, cut off from the Messiah, is because they're still blind to the truth about how to get it all, by faith. And it's all played out the same way, right? They've, they've killed the prophet, they've killed the king, just like they used to. It's a wicked, 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 thousands of years long rendition of Groundhog Day. Here we are again. New day, same story. Same problem, same reason. But there's a note here for all of us as we read this morning as well. We can, we can easily, as we've said, get so caught up in, in just all the theological discussion around these texts that we, that we actually miss the great tragedy of the story here and what our place is in it too. We don't get to approach the story of the Bible as, as simply casual third-party observers, right? Like any good story, the Bible intends to draw us in, to make us participants in it. And when we let it do that, we see very, very quickly that, that just like Israel repeatedly over and over and over again falls into disbelief and opposition towards God, that all too often our lives fall into the same exact patterns. The, the story of Israel, it's meant to serve us more like, a, like a, a mirror that reflects back to us our own sinful tendencies than it does simply as a window just giving us insight into, into historical national Israel. And its purpose in that is that we would see that our only hope is the same as theirs is. It's that we would stop all vain efforts at reaching God by, by our own morality and our own self-righteousness, and our own rule following, and believe in the saving person and work of Christ, the Messiah. That's the point of all of it. Because at the same time, the story would have us see that, that just like Israel is not the only character in the story, neither are we the only character in the story of our own lives either. In the same way as Israel, the way that God worked then, is the same way that he's working right now today. And it's the same way he's going to work through you and me, and it's the same way that he's going to work in the future as well. And so that's where we turn now. We've, we've seen the pattern of Israel and what they do. They've killed the prophet. They've killed the king. We've seen why they do it. Because they don't understand the message of faith in the scriptures that testify to the need for faith in that king and prophet. And so let's look at what God does and why he does that in light of the state of Israel. What we see God do with Israel in light of their rebellion against him is that he graciously preserves a remnant from among them. Again, this is the same thing God has always been doing. It's the pattern of how he works through Israel even as they reject him. And this is the answer to the question that was raised at the beginning of the text in verse 1. Has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. It's Paul's answer. Absolutely not. But, but it's not quite that simple because you have to understand who God's people really are in order to understand the argument. Uh, there, there's a sense in which God's people uh, was Israel under the old covenant, right? But the new covenant has been ushered in, and so now God's people, that group, are, are not just Israel, they're the church. 
It's a mixed community. It's both Jew and Gentile. And this is a, a fundamental shift that's taken place that was always part of the hope of the Old Testament and the New Covenant, but, but it wasn't actually manifested until the Spirit was sent down at Pentecost. And so the group now that makes up God's people used to be Israel, but now it's the church. And I actually think there's a way in which the text has in mind both groups, right? Ethnic Israel and, and, and now true Israel, spiritual Israel. He has in mind both groups when he says, no, God has not rejected his people. But the distinction is important. And understanding the distinction, it actually helps us answer the question being raised in two ways. And so the answer is no, God has not rejected his people. And yes, he's been faithful to his word to his people, his promise to his people. But if national Israel has fallen away, then how is that true? Two ways. Well, first we see that God has not rejected his people because his people are no longer limited to national Israel. <laughs> it includes the Gentiles as well. This is, again, like we just said, it's been the hope all along. And all that, now that Christ has, has not only come down, but he sent his spirit, that hope has been realized. We're seeing that being manifested already in the days of Paul. This goes all the way back to the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, where the Lord says he's going he's to make Abraham into a great nation, singular, which is the nation of Israel. But then as we just keep reading a couple verses in the same exact promise, he says, and through you, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. So even at the establishment, the very beginning, before national Israel is even a thing, when he promises to bring about national Israel, there's, there's already been an eye towards the nations. The Lord enters into a unique relationship with Israel, but, but all the while, the real, the real apple of his eye, right, is the establishment of his church. It's the bride of Christ. That's, that's who he's after. That's who his, his heart is set on. It's a people made up of all peoples. And, and the purpose of his relationship to this one nation, Israel, is that they would be a blessing to the nations. That's their, that's their primary purpose. And most significantly, that's because this one nation, Israel, it's who the Messiah is going to come through, who's the Savior of, of not just Israel, but of the whole world, right? Then we see in Genesis 17, after Abraham's faith, the Lord literally tells him, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, plural. Through Abraham, then, will come both a, a, a nation through whom all other nations will be blessed. That's where it's about Israel, singular. But he will also become the father of many nations. That's the people of God now, the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, people of all tribes, tongues, nations, languages. And this is the distinction that Paul makes between the children of Abraham by descent and the children of Abraham by promise. The children of descent are part of national Israel. It's ethnicity. The children of promise, though, still children of Abraham, but not in lineage. <laughs> They're children of Abraham in the sense that they have the same faith that Abraham has. These now, these are the people of God. Not, not national Israel, the children of descent, but spiritual Israel the ones who have the same faith that Abraham had. So, has God been faithful to his people? Well, yes, but if you're asking that question, assuming that, that God's people are only Jews, then you're asking the wrong question. That's never been the hope or the promise. And has the word of God failed? Well, well no. But if you're asking that because you see the fulfillment of his word only applying to the Jews, well then, you're asking the wrong question. That's never been the hope or the promise. 
God being faithful to his people, it doesn't, it doesn't require anything special for national Israel because just simply enough, national Israel is not what's been in view in the ultimate fulfillment of his promises since the very beginning. It's always been about a mixed community with the nations coming in, and that's what we see unfolding with the coming of Christ. Secondly, we see that God has not rejected his people. He's not been unfaithful to his word because not every member of national Israel has been rejected. As we've already stated, God has graciously preserved a remnant among them, just like he always has. After saying absolutely not, Paul first speaks about himself. (laughs) He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. This is, this is a, a lesser uh, to greater argument here that Paul makes. He moves from himself, the one man, uh, to make an argument about God's dealing with the whole nation. And so it's not that the entire nation is saved, but part of that nation has been preserved, and that's evident by the work of God in Paul's life. If God had completely rejected national Israel, then he would have rejected Paul as well because Paul is part of national Israel. Again, this is nothing new, and it's, it's simply... Uh, an extension of the pattern of how God has always worked through his people. God has always preserved a remnant for himself out of a people who are in gross opposition to him. That's how it's always gone. Paul reminds us of this from the story of Elijah as well, which we, uh, we, we already talked about a little bit. Uh, but this is what he said to Elijah when he pleaded to God against him back in verse 4. He, he quotes a story. But what was God's reply to him? I have left 7,000 men for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then Paul writes, in the same way then, there's also, at the present time, a remnant chosen by grace. This question about the faithfulness of God's word in light of the unfaithfulness uh, of Israel, uh, it came up at the beginning of chapter 3, too. If you'll remember there, it was dealing with this, this same exact idea at the end of chapter 2, that it's not uh, the ones who have the circumcision of the flesh that are real Jews. It's the one who have the circumcision of the heart. Those are the true Jews. Same thing he said at the beginning of chapter 9 to to kind of frame this whole conversation in chapters 9 to 11. He makes the statement, not all Israel is Israel. It's the same thing. And then the question right after that is really the same one that's asked here too. If not all Jews are really Jews, if some uh, don't believe, has God been unfaithful to his promise to the Jews? And Paul, of course, he says no there too, but remember where he goes to show support there. He goes to David. He goes to David's words in Psalm 51, who's, who's guilty of heinous sins against God and other people. And then he, he quotes David confessing the Lord's faithfulness to forgive him if he simply, simply trusts in the grace of the gospel. <laughs> and so again, don't, don't miss the emphasis of the point here. Although part of national Israel being the people through whom the promise would come have rejected that very promise, rejected the Messiah, and are therefore on the outside looking in on the fulfillment of God's promises, if you're reading the story and coming to the conclusion somehow that God has not been faithful to his word or not been faithful to Israel, you're not coming to the right conclusion and you're missing part of the story. For one, you've missed the fact that the promise was never just for national Israel. And two, you've forgotten how God graciously saved and forgave and used Israelite men like Paul and David. All throughout the story. 
we see this. These are two of the most extreme cases of sinful rebellion against God, yet they are two of the most impactful men that God used in the Bible to bring out the fruition of the gospel. We've seen how Israel works. We've seen how God works now. And so what's the right conclusion? That God is the one who's been unfaithful? No. (laughs) Anything but that. God is the only faithful one in the story. And even in the midst of, of, of gross and heinous opposition against him, he still graciously brings about the fulfillment of his promises. Both the people of national Israel in the same way as you and me, as sinners saved by grace. And the reason that he does it the way, the the reason that he does it is so that once again, it would be evident that salvation can only be by the grace of God and not by the works of man. This is our last point this morning. It's why God does what he does, why he preserves a remnant, so that it would be by grace and not by works. Verse 5, he writes, in the same way then, there's also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 6, now if by grace and is not by works, otherwise grace ceases to be grace. He then goes on to talk about how Israel, they did not find what they were looking for, which we know from the end of chapter 9, it's, it's righteousness. And we know from chapter 9 that the reason they have not found it is because they pursued it by the laws if it were by works. But the story doesn't want you to believe that that's ever possible. It never leads you to believe that anyone can actually obtain righteousness by the works of the law. It always shows you that the only way to obtain righteousness is by the grace of God. Remember this morning that if anyone was going to be able to do it by works, it would have been the nation of Israel. Nobody, nobody was more capable than Israel. It was Israel to whom the law was given. It was Israel who, they they had the law memorized. They knew all the words It was Israel who had the sacrifices and the rituals and and the temple service. If anyone in the world could accomplish salvation by works, it would have been Israel. Yet as the story unfolds, we see the shocking reality that not only has Israel not inherited the blessing of the promise and not obtained the righteousness they pursued, their misguided pursuit of it by works of the law, it's actually blinded them to where they can actually get it from, Christ. And the only place they can actually get it from, Christ, they've rejected and killed him. Not only have they missed it, they've they've radically missed it. And as if the story wasn't crazy enough, now the Gentiles, the other nations, uh, who who don't have any of the things that the Jews do, right? They don't have any of the the advantages uh, to being Jewish. They don't have the law. They don't have the sacrifices. They don't have any of the the, uh, ceremonies or the purification rituals. They don't have any of it. They're the ones who obtain the righteousness that Israel has pursued. (laughs) How? Through faith in Christ. And friends, that is the very thing God wants you to see through all of it. That is the conclusion the Bible wants you to make through the story. It tells that once again, salvation can only come by faith in the grace of God on your behalf. The whole question around this, as we've stated several times, 
is has the word of God failed them? If Israel has fallen away, then, then has the word of God failed them? Friends, understand that God's word has not failed because it, 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 has, it has done and is still doing what it always promised to do. It's graciously bringing sinners to faith and repentance. And understand this, because, because the Jews have pursued righteousness, not by faith, but by works of the law, that if they actually had obtained that righteousness by works, only then would God's word have failed. Do you understand that? Only then would God's word cease to be true. Because they would have obtained by works what the Bible says you can only obtain by faith. But does this mean that God's grace does not extend to the nation of Israel as well? Of course, of course it doesn't. Even in spite of their continued spiral of rebellion, even among the most self-righteous people, even among the people who should get it, yet they radically miss it, even among them, God graciously preserves a remnant, just like he always has. Because he has to show it. He has to make it abundantly clear that it can only be by grace. Friends, this is what the entire story of the Bible wants you to understand. It's the, right, it's the right conclusion at the end of the story, that it's only by the grace of God that you can be saved. And dare I say that our, our effectiveness this morning as, as, as the church, as God's people, who are now called to, to uh, not just believe, but actually participate in this great story of redemption that's unfolded across all of human history that we witness in the Bible, it's contingent upon how well we remember and understand the story that's unfolded across the pages of Scripture and the fact that all of it is pointing us towards the need for God's grace. Because it's this very story that we're now called to participate in as God's people. One pastor put it this way. He said, the only churches that will thrive in any meaningful way going forward will not be castles of purity where the morally fit feel comfortable but rather basements of grace where all are embraced and forgiven. The places where sin does not shock and grace still amazes. Friends, in the biblical storyline, these are now the people of God. These are now God's people. This is who we're called to be. People, people who read the story rightly. People who understand the story of God's redemption and what their, what their place is in it. People who don't identify themselves as ones who are actually able to do it themselves, who don't view themselves as living in castles of purity. Who are not shocked by sin. Who are not shocked by moral failures. Who understand that our great inability to do it ourselves should over and over and over again lead us to being amazed by grace. That we'd be people who just, who, who just live in the basements of grace and don't elevate ourselves into the, the gutters of piety and self-righteousness because we understand that grace is all we have. If we could have the worship team come back up as we close and, uh, and also those who are uh, helping with communion, if you could come up. 
We get reminders of God's grace all throughout the Bible like we've seen this morning. But, but God, in tandem with his word, he doesn't just give us a testimony of grace in the scriptures. He also, he also gives us acts of grace to participate now in as, as an ongoing reminder, not only of what's happened, but also a way of, of allowing us to now participate in the story. And one of those things is what we're about to do in a moment as we finish service, which is communion. We see, uh, we see Christ instituted, instituted this as a sacrament for his church before his death uh, when we read in Matthew 26, where it says, As they ate at the Lord's Supper, Jesus took the bread, he blessed and he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so we do this act together and remember what Christ has done for us and what he's secured for us, that, that everything we could possibly hope for, it's, it's, it's actually been secured for us by the blood of Christ. And it's it's precisely because we understand that we too have patterns of, of sinfulness and rebellion. We're prone to wander outside of God's will and his grace. It's because of that that we, we, we need to come back to the table repeatedly to be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. We know that the cross, it, it exposes all of us for who we truly are. But it also gives us the greatest hope that we could imagine. And it reminds us of our new life in Christ. And so for this reason, we do believe that uh, this act that we're going to take in, it is, it is for the believer. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, uh, this isn't going to do anything special for you. It's not a way uh, to get closer to God or somehow make him more pleased with you or anything like that. But that it is a testimony to you of what's available to you, which is participation in the life of Christ. And so we do invite everybody who's made that decision, put their faith and hope in Christ as Savior, to participate with us this morning. If you've been here and done this, uh, you kind of know how it works, but we'll have everybody uh, come, up the, come up the aisles here. Uh, we'll have people standing at, at the end of both of those. And uh, you'll be free to then just take it back to your seat. You can take it uh, on your own or with a small group or family or whoever's around you. Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll finish in one more song. And so go ahead and come on up.